Hi, everyone, and Happy New Year. Happy 2022. Welcome to another episode of Health Shift, my podcast that bridges the gap between conventional modalities and ancient healing for complete mind, body, and spirit well-being. I'm here to help support people making a shift. And please note that these discussions are not medical advice, and nor should they be used in place of medical assessments and treatments. So let's get started. Today, I'd like to welcome Bob Anthony. After 20 years in the tech industry, Bob founded Adolescent Wellness, a 501c3 nonprofit that promotes practical resources to prevent mood disorders and prompt earlier treatment for adolescents. He's a contributing author to the book titled Patient-Centered Digital Healthcare Technology on the Gamification of Mental Health Prevention and Promotion. Boy, do we have a lot to talk about in that respect. (laughs) (laughs) Innovations Bob has facilitated. Boston Children's Hospital Break Free from Depression Curriculum for Schools and Building Bridges to Understanding. The Continuing Medical Education for Pediatricians. Both are delivered on demand and through open pediatrics. Another, McLean's Hospital School Nurse Liaison Project. And a third, William James College's Wellness Center Games and the Social Emotional Competency Training Pilot for School Leaders. He has an MBA from Keller Graduate School of Management, and I've known Bob for over 10 years and was one of the adult mentors and trainers for adolescent wellness in Wellesley, Massachusetts. I am thrilled to have Bob join us here today. So welcome, Bob. Thank you for having me, Julie. You are so welcome. So tell us your story, how you got to where you are today. So indirect is is (laughs) the story of, of most of my work has been, I have a background in finance. And I was in the tech industry for 20 years. 2001 was a very difficult time for the nation with the attack in New York and Washington. I found it uh, overwhelming. It was earlier in the year that I lost my brother. He had a tumor and died. I lost my mother. Mm. Uh, I am an entrepreneur. And the tech industry was just recovering mid-year 2001. And of course, in September, the tech industry collapsed. So I had a very, very rough time and was diagnosed with depression. Mm -hmm. Found out after learning more about it that it was probably lifelong, you know, certainly since school years. I found that good news that it was treatable and uh, explained some some of my compulsive decision-making But it was extremely frustrating that I was age 50 before I learned this. 2005, started a nonprofit called Adolescent Wellness Incorporated. And its goal, as you say, was to help all ages, but particularly younger people, just be aware of themselves and how to ask for help when it's appropriate. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. You know, the more that I've been chatting with people, Many of my, my colleagues back from the Wellesley Newton area, and also just you know experiencing my own experiences growing up, I had learning challenges and was extremely anxious. In fact, I used to say that I was frozen in fear. I would go numb in the hands, the mouth, the feet, never knowing what that was until I was in college and learning that it was general anxiety disorder. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of us actually come to this work with passion because of our own personal experiences. Would you say that for yourself? Definitely. 
Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So what are some of the obstacles that get in your way going from, you know, a high powered tech industry finance career to developing a nonprofit? So the, the startup was pretty easy. I found it difficult um, getting some of the resources um, into wide use. I found that very frustrating. We're blessed in the Boston area with some of the best um, research, medical training, and treatment facilities in the world. And my little town of Wellesley, Massachusetts was right in between two of them, McLean Hospital mm-hmm. and Boston Children's Hospital. We were able to um, get both of those institutions to document what they agreed on at that time, you know, uh, wellness and uh, mental health uh, treatment and prevention for young people is actually a new science, mm-hmm. um, perhaps 25 years. And they were very good about developing a practical uh, curriculum for middle school and high school. I, I was really surprised how difficult it was to see the Wellesley School District adopt that curriculum. Mm. So that's the biggest challenge. Now, now that you've identified something that can be used by anyone, how do you get it used? Yeah, yeah, it's so true. Um, and it's interesting because we are both in in that um, in that town. Um, I, I feel that in part it was once they experienced all the suicides that things opened up and changed. That was my experience. Um, would you say that that was you know, similar for you or accurate for you? Um, I had the opposite experience, Julie. Um, they felt they were very defensive. You know, they had mm. lost children to suicide and they um, were worried about at least one family suing. And the mental health provider had been there for decades. It, mm. It's not a great policy to have a CPA for 30 years or a single law firm for 30 years, you should, as a way to make sure everything is um, well managed, um, switch over your professional advisors, perhaps every five years, every 10 years. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen in Wellesley. So they were mm-hmm. dug in. Um, I was surprised that they actively prevented um, outside help from McLean Hospital during those um, re- re- rehabilitation years, if you will, um, after each suicide. And they likewise uh, actively prevented help from Children's Hospital of Boston. So I, I guess one takeaway was that nonprofits are a lot more competitive than uh, typical uh, for-profit companies. There is a worry that a dollar going to somebody else may be a dollar they don't get. That, that was my impression. Ah, ah, okay, okay. So there's a lot that we didn't see actually as residents for sure. Yeah, Yeah, and there's a lot that uh, was offered free of charge to the town that was rejected by the mental health consultant. Ah, okay. That is really, really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, I know. I know. My experience in working with you was that we actually had some of the teens, you know, the teen mentors and the the adult mentors and whatnot. And I so enjoyed working with you folks, and also, you know, just helping to facilitate some of the wellness for uh, for the young folks. Yeah, it was fun for me as well. We we um, saw the artificial barrier going into the school classroom, 
And so the alternative, we went to the families. So mm -hmm. we had the parent workshops, the choices, changes, and chocolate. We did the clergy workshops, and then eventually the teens themselves became peer mentors. And yes, that yes. That was probably the biggest victory in Wellesley. Yeah, and I do remember I was involved in the um, uh, the interdenominational uh, reach outreach, you know, where we had the temples and the churches and all of that. And actually, you and I uh, cooperated together in one of my projects that I was using um, to create a, a concert, you know, to raise money for mental health, you know, within Wellesley. So that, that was, was a actually, terrific concert. I enjoyed yeah. that. <laughs> I, did the, I did, too. I did, too. faith program was called iGrow. Yes, that's right. Interfaith yes. gathering around our wellness. Yes, yes. And, you know, it, it, when we think about how, um, oh, my goodness, the spiritual upheaval that we have right now going on, um, you know, that is something that really collectively brought every everybody together, every denomination, which was really wonderful. Yeah. Wow. So tell us, um, tell us how you became an international program. I'm really curious about that and also just so impressed with the work and how it's grown. We found these artificial barriers and, and did some brainstorming about how you would um, promote a product, a traditional product, when, when your uh, target market isn't, isn't what you thought it was. And we realized that um, there are, in any profession, early adopters and late adopters. We realized that in Wellesley, they were late adopters on that bell curve. And so we had to reach wider to find where the earlier adopters were. Um, schools are terribly busy. We understand that. And it really needs an internal champion to bring something like this in because it absolutely requires time and mm -hmm. to prioritize attention while it gets underway. The simplest way we could expand our market was to um, make everything portable. So this curriculum uh, became a web-based training. Mm -hmm. This is back 2005, so that wasn't as common as it is today. Um, Self-test you know, for a teacher or a counselor or a teen mentor after they uh, completed the online didactic information and earning the diploma, if you will, the certificate from the training then made you a trainer for others and gave you access to download, not, not just uh, handouts, but uh, ways to actually measure outcomes. Mm -hmm. So simple pre-survey pre and post-survey. So even the teams had projects where at the end of the semester, they'd show the group result before they did their portion of the curriculum and the group result after. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it uh, was easily understood by anyone who chose to review it. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting how how sometimes the things that are, are our roadblocks are our challenges become mm -hmm. our, great, our greatest assets. Yes. God bless you, Julie. I wish I, <laughs> I wish I knew that all, every day. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. pretty quickly, that same curriculum became adopted mm -hmm. by schools, uh, not just in Massachusetts, but you know. Um, throughout the States, Mexico, Canada. Um, I personally have seen it in uh, Puerto Rico, India, Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's, it's at least in a dozen countries. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. It's so, so very impressive. And it's interesting because, um, so 
obviously you were very forward thinking. Thank God for your tech industry background in some ways, because again, that whole idea of gamification. Um, I'm recently started with uh, beta testing with virtual reality. Again, something that I never in a thousand years thought that I would even be looking at, but I had listened and watched a TED talk uh, with a a developer, Robin Arnott, who was in the gaming industry and said, you know what? I would like to use this in a good way for mental health and has developed a program called SoundSelf. And I'm going to be one of his beta testing sites for, again, using VR in, uh, in the treatment of mental health issues, reducing anxiety and depression in your, in your home. So this is, you know, we, we need to embrace both worlds. And I think COVID in some ways has also, you know, really brought us to think outside the box even more in a greater way. So how has COVID either impacted you positively or negatively in terms of um, what you're doing with, with adolescent wellness? Well, let's look at the baseline. Uh, before <laughs> COVID in the United States, half of our youth with a psychiatric illness never in their lifetimes get treatment. The other half do get treatment, but on average, there's a 10-year lag between the first symptoms and when they actually recognize it and and get into a treatment protocol. So it's a pretty low bar. What we know is the um, accumulation of of studies that um, are already available is that symptoms increased about 20% from where they were this is globally. And people reporting inability to access mental health treatment increased a third. Mm-hmm. So how, however you felt about hearing that first set of statistics, you know, it's 20% heavier in the symptoms and, and uh, over 30% heavier in um, access. Access. Yeah. yeah. In my own, but you were asking about my own experience. And I, I have three observations. I'm absolutely convinced now that prevention is as important as treatment. I know that teletreatment is much better than no treatment. And I know that isolation is currently hurting more youth than than COVID is hurting youth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely so true, yeah. So quick example, I was, 2019, um, just before um, the pandemic in Nigeria, and befriended um, a young man going to university. He's a rising freshman. And basically, he got a call um, after the holiday saying, never mind, we're, we're not opening. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a freshman, but you know, find something else to do. And it's been a full year. And you know, he, he's now starting to uh, attend la- classes, but that's a lost year for someone who, who was finding challenges in life to begin with. Sure. In India, we ha- have just launched um, before this new year began a um, program to both develop existing teachers as school counselors mm-hmm. with uh, training over a year-long diploma program. And um, they were then to introduce the wellness curriculum into middle schools in India. Well, those middle schools haven't opened yet. So again, you know, it's a year later and people are still 
um, trying to balance the uh, needs of different age groups. Sure, sure. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it brings me to the next phase, which is how do we then begin to train parents and families? Uh, you know, I'm at very actively involved with a colleague of mine here who started a, a nonprofit called Best Vibes Family Villages. She and I attended a female entrepreneurship program uh, just before the pandemic, and then we got closed down and everything went online. Um, but I, I contribute to her, you know, her program. And, and again, her mission is how do we create resilient families and how do we also empower parents so that they have some of this skill? Because we can't just rely on, we obviously can't rely just on the schools and teachers are overwhelmed as well. And we obviously can't rely just on the mental health professionals because if there's one third less availability, we really got to start working at, you know, working on the family, the family level. I, and I know this is probably a, um, this is a, uh, <laughs> a curveball for you, but any thoughts on that? Thank you for the curveball, Jim. <laughs> no, I, I, I am thrilled actually yeah. that you brought this up because um, it is the immediate priority of my time and, and adolescent wellness's priority right now. The um, thing we confirmed in the past year we, I mean, universally, what, what was discovered in the past year was that um, there, there was a strong um, feeling that in-person treatment was more um, effective than, than, if you will, teletherapy treatment. And we know that's true. We, we confirmed that over the past year. We also confirmed that teletherapy is much, much, much better than no therapy. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, you know, in Nigeria or, or India, right in Boston, uh, a lot of the people who go to McLean, who, who bring families that uh, bring their children to uh, uh, Children's Hospital downtown um, are not all from Massachusetts. You know, some are from um, mm -hmm. New Hampshire, some are from Rhode Island. Sure. Um, McLean didn't see patients. It, it was part of the protocol. You know, it was the hospital protocol. If you, if you weren't becoming inpatient, stay away. So these people either got no therapy or they got teletherapy. Mm -hmm. And of course, that was dramatically better than no therapy. Sure. So there's uh, two, two answers to your question. One, um, we, we are seeing doors open to teletherapy that were long closed. Um, the biggest barrier is seeing a provider get reimbursed by the insurance company serving a patient out of state. Sure, sure. Okay. And it's a little complicated because there's a licensing unique to each state. And so, of course. But, but what we've discovered is there's, there's ways to do it thoughtfully. And, and, and so that's one trend that's happening. But more specific to the family education piece that you brought up, um, during the introduction, you were kind enough to mention the building bridges to understand it. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, continuing medical education for pediatricians because they went through medical school and for the most part didn't have a specialty in psychiatry. Sure. But in real life, about 40% of their cases are people with behavioral health problems. And it's not just, you know, teens, it's all the way down. Uh, you can find symptoms in some infants. 
Um, and certainly the parents are, are struggling, whatever the age group, when they have a worry for their child. The Building Bridges to Understanding does um, two things for the family. It trains the pediatrician to be more competent in addressing the behavioral health question and importantly, more confident. So, so they'll initiate a few more conversations. They'll be listening more thoughtfully and have a follow-up question. For the families, it's huge because you've got a better provider, even if you're not seeing a psychologist or, or a psychiatrist, you're seeing a well-informed pediatrician. And in addition to the training, there's a clinician's manual that goes to the pediatrician. But for the families, there's also a preventive self-management guide. Mm. And this is a set. There, there's a set for um, youngsters. There's a set for middle school. And there's a set for high school ages. And this, there's a fourth set for parents. And the things they talk about are coping skills. Mm-hmm. And that is something that our, our common friend, Nadja Riley, would, would say is uh, what helps us better balance life's worries. Mm-hmm. So, so very true. Yes. You know, um, when I work with families, one of the things that I oftentimes recommend is actually having a family meeting, you know, at a time when people are not feeling emotional, but where everyone can kind of bring up their issues, their concerns and their questions. And I was actually on a walk with a friend the other day and I said, you know, we can't necessarily blame parents if they don't know what questions to ask. And so having these manuals actually triggers the potential for questions like, oh, never even thought about that. How do I manage that? What do I do with it? Yes. Okay. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I had the pleasure uh, in honor of working at McLean's many years ago. You may not know this, but I started their outpatient eating disorder program uh, because I was working very heavily in mental health and eating disorders back in the day. And um, it, was a, it was a great institution to work with for sure. I, and I came in with sort of outside the box ways of doing things, which was using real food and healthy food, as opposed to, you know, trying to train your anorexics and your bulimics to eat Oreo cookies. <laughs> so, because there's so much about what goes on in our brain chemistry that also impacts our feelings, our thoughts, and our behaviors. That, that's huge, yeah. Julie. Were you there before the Klarman Center was created or was uh, that in uh, Good question. Um, man, I'm trying to even remember. It was somewhere around the 90s when I was there. You probably yeah. preceded the Klarman Center. They, mm-hmm. they took your work and built on it in a big way. They, they now have inpatient, mm-hmm. which is not available in New England. That's correct. They didn't have that. inpatient at that time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You, you made an impact. Well, that's that's good to hear. Yes. Yeah. And I frequently, I frequently joke with my clients and say, we, you know, we don't always talk about nuts and berries in my office. It's usually about real life issues. Uh, and in fact, I think that that's really true because frequently patients will be referred. You know, I started out as a registered dietitian, knew that that was not the be all and end all, did my, my graduate in mental health and counseling, and then went on to functional medicine. And then it expanded into yoga and, and other things as well. But um, oftentimes it might be food that brings somebody into my office, but it's really exploring, peeling the onion, those layers of trauma and, and healing that needs to really happen on multiple layers. Yeah. Love the work that you're doing. It's really great. So what are your next, uh, what are your next endeavors, 
tell us what you're what you're up to now. Well, you you've um, actually opened that door already talking about resources for families to use mm-hmm. directly, resources for parents to use directly. Um, earlier, I, I mentioned this is relatively new science. You know, if you think about um, discovering bacteria and antibiotics uh, over a century ago, sure, um, it was all uh, a black art before the uh, adolescent depression study, and that, that literally was 25 years ago. So, for the first time, they had outcomes supported by evidence that allowed. Um, not only how to do treatment, but to begin to understand how to do prevention. So we benefit from all that. Um, the, the, the premise of the curriculum was not to have teachers or school nurse um, provide information. It was for the students themselves to be self-aware and to recognize what additional skills they wish they had and to know the words and the people to get help when they needed it. Mm. So I'll repeat the um, newer, newest resource, which is um, through the pediatrician. And it's, it's available certainly nationally. And um, I hope other countries will uh, take advantage of it as well pretty soon. So I, I would ask all of your listeners to ask their pediatrician directly for the toolkit. Yes. Okay, great. And what is the, um, what is that toolkit exactly, Bob? I, I will definitely make sure that I have that available, even in written format for people. Yeah. So it's called, um, well, they have to get through their pediatrician and, mm-hmm. and it's called building bridges to understanding. Building bridges to understanding. Wonderful. Yeah. So, so the question is, may, may I have that for my son or daughter? May I have that for myself? And the pediatrician doesn't have it it's because they haven't completed building bridges to understanding course. And and so then the next question is, would you please um, complete that training? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's putting the ask back out there and, uh, and also increasing their awareness. I am also going to definitely connect you. As you know, I'm one of those e-connect people. We, when I, when I find people who are really quality and working in their integrity and with, with right intention, I'd love to connect them. So I'm definitely going to connect you with Stephanie Kessel, who's my, my colleague here in San Diego doing work with families. So this is wonderful. What three tips do you have to offer teens, parents, educators, and caregivers in this new and evolving way of life? I, I think we've covered that. I, I really, <laughs> I read sincerely um, in, in that entire group, you, you've identified yep. um, the folks that would benefit from this mm-hmm. tool. And this is the newest thing adolescent wellness is promoting. Um, it, it didn't exist last year. Perfect. So building bridges. Okay. That's going to be an amazing one right there. Yes. Wonderful. And thank you so much for being here today and sharing your wisdom. How can people connect with you directly? The email is rwa1645 at gmail.com. Perfect. And there's a phone number and address right on the adolescentwellness.org website. Wonderful. Wonderful. And Bob, I'm so thrilled that you actually allow uh, and actually put your email and your phone number out there. I do the same thing. I'd call it still the old fashioned way of connecting. Um, I still sell 
send snail mail letters and cards. Um, but I think we really do need to keep those methods of connection, even though it means sometimes it's a little bit of an overload. So thank you so, so much. And if you like this podcast, please rate, review, share with your friends, your families, your coworkers, and your pediatricians. I'm on a mission to change the current paradigm of healthcare and mental health care. And you can find me at juliefreeman.net, on Instagram at Julie Freeman Mindful Wellness, and on YouTube at Julie Freeman Functional Medicine La Jolla. Have a wonderful day and happy 2022.